In the 1980s, the Walt Disney Company was on the brink of failure. But starting in 1989, the animation studio produced a run of 10 films that put Disney back on top and might be the most influential and iconic run of films ever produced by a single studio, the Disney Renaissance. Today in the Diz Quiz, we'll be ranking each of those great films, so let's get into it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to the Diz Quiz. As always, I'm your host, Tommy T, continuing our season three here where the format is whatever I feel like. Each episode is different, and I'm excited to bring you this one all about the Disney Renaissance. I'm going to give you a brief history of the era, and then we're going to rank those films from 10 all the way up to number one. Before we get into that, just my usual word about how you can support the Diz Quiz, and that's by subscribing on YouTube or the podcast app of your choice, leaving a review in that podcast store or a like, a thumbs up, a comment, really any way you engage with the show is a great way to support and help us grow, and I really do appreciate it. I also wanted to let you know that on October 1st, I'll be launching a new Walt Disney World-focused app on the iOS App Store. I'll talk about it more at the end of the show, but basically it's a fun way to log and track everything there is to do in Walt Disney World, so check that out if you're interested. Without further ado, let's get into the show with our brief history of the Disney Renaissance. I'm going to keep this pretty high level because if I didn't, we'd be here for hours. But if you want a more in-depth look at these events, I highly recommend the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is on Disney+. Plus and the book Disney War. I'll be sure to link both in the description. Following Walt Disney's death in 1966, the 70s and 80s were a low point for the Disney company, especially in film. In fact, a hostile takeover event almost resulted in the company being sold off piece by piece. Rock Bottom came with The Black Cauldron, a film with some nice elements, but not an accessible or memorable one in most regards, and performed very poorly. As they mentioned in Waking Sleeping Beauty, it lost out of the box office to the Care Bear movie. Care a lot is a place you'd like to be. Yikes. Right around the time when Black Cauldron was being finished, new leadership was installed at the company, led by three people you've probably heard of. CEO Michael Eisner, President Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg as the head of the studio. They were too late to save the Black Cauldron, though they tried. Next came The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. Enjoyable enough movies, but failed to meet the quality and resonance that made Disney so iconic a few decades prior. So by the late 80s, it was feeling like the Walt Disney Animation Studio was on the brink of irrelevance. A glimmer of hope appeared in the great success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, showing that audiences were still open to animation. But the studio needed a hit more than they ever had since Walt Disney produced the first feature-length animated film with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And that hit came in 1989 in the form of The Little Mermaid. This kicked off a series of 10 films that we refer to today as the Disney Renaissance, where the Walt Disney Animation Studios for the first time, perhaps since Walt Disney's death, were truly a phenomenon and in control of the cultural zeitgeist. Those films were The Little Mermaid in 1989, The Rescuers Down Under in 1990, Beauty and the Beast in 1991, Aladdin in 1992, The Lion King in 1994, Pocahontas in 1995, Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1996, Hercules in 1997, Mulan in 1998, 
and Tarzan in 1999. Before we rank these movies, I want to go a little more into how this lightning in a bottle happened, and I think that starts with the people behind the films. I think too often we look at movies like they just appear out of thin air, or that a company like Disney can write a giant check and a movie just gets made, but it takes a lot of people with passion, vision, and talent to make them a reality. So I want to shine a spotlight on just some of the people that made the Disney Renaissance possible. I already mentioned the two men at the top, CEO Michael Eisner and President Frank Wells, who were brought into Disney in 1984 to write the ship. Eisner is of course a well-known personality for his bold attitude and willingness to pursue big ideas. Wells, on the other hand, was a more level-headed and business-focused figure, the Roy to Eisner's Walt. Together they found that same balance of the original Disney founders that allowed the company to start taking some big chances without going too far off the deep end. When Eisner came from Paramount to Disney, he brought with him Paramount's head of production, Jeffrey Katzenberg, to run the entire Disney studio. Katzenberg saw the potential of the animation department, and though he's known for being difficult to work with, it's not unreasonable to believe that Disney's revival does not happen without his ambition and intensity. His departure may have also signaled the end of the studio's great success, but more on that later. Also in 1984, Walt's nephew Roy E. Disney, who hadn't been with the company since 1977 when he left due to disagreement with the corporate direction, came back into the picture. When the threat of a hostile takeover arose, Roy's Save Disney campaign was instrumental in keeping the company intact, which set the stage for the arrival of Eisner and Wells. He subsequently became the head of the animation studio and spearheaded a great number of Disney projects through the 90s and early 2000s. Directing a feature-length animated film is no small feat, which is why it usually takes two people to manage the production. Literally every person credited as a director on these films has a fascinating story and diverse body of work inside and outside of Disney. Seriously, go to any of their Wikipedia pages and fall down a rabbit hole. But I have to give a special shout out to John Musker and Ron Clements. The pair directed The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Hercules, plus other Disney projects that include The Great Mouse Detective, Treasure Planet, The Princess and the Frog, and Moana. Their ability to turn out consistently great work is astounding. I think many of us are familiar with the many voice actors featured in these movies, but it's the animators that spend hundreds of hours drawing the characters that truly bring them to life. Perhaps the three most instrumental animators of this run were Glenn Keane, Andreas Deha, and Mark Henn. Here's a brief rundown of their renaissance output. Glenn Keane animated Ariel, Marachute, The Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Adult Tarzan. Andreas Deha animated King Triton, Gaston, Jafar, Scar, and Adult Hercules. Mark Henn animated Bernard and Bianca, Belle, Jasmine, Young Simba, Mulan, and contributed to Ariel and Pocahontas. Other talented supervising animators that contributed to many of these films were Ruben Aquino, James Baxter, Will Finn, Russ Edmonds, and Duncan Majoribanks. Plus, so many other character designers, background artists, in-betweeners, visual effects artists, and other incredible craftspeople that created these films literally from nothing. To me personally, the music is what truly puts this era a cut above the rest. To run through their accomplishments real quick, six of them had songs win the Oscar for Best Original Song, five of the scores won the Oscar for Best Original Score, and seven of the soundtracks went multi-platinum. Of course, the most prolific musician behind these films is Alan Menken, who wrote the score and original songs for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Hercules. 
Howard Ashman was his lyrical partner on Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Parts of Aladdin before he passed away, and I truly believe that the two of them had some of the most significant influences on how these films were approached. Ashman was a producer on The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast as well, so he had a large hand in creating the template that would be emulated for most of these films and still is today for movies like Frozen and Moana. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the great songs written by Elton John for The Lion King and Phil Collins for Tarzan, as well as the work done by Tim Rice as lyricist on Aladdin and The Lion King and Stephen Schwartz on Pocahontas and Hunchback. So why did it all end? Why didn't Disney keep churning out classic after classic? Here's where I'll once again have to suggest something like Disney War for a deeper dive because there were a number of corporate shifts and battles that would take far too long to explain. But to make a long story short, it all starts with the sudden and tragic death of Frank Wells in 1994. The Disney president lost his life in a helicopter accident and left a void that Eisner simply could not replace. Katzenberg wanted the job as second in command, but Eisner's unwillingness to promote him led to him leaving the company in 1994. Many of the risks taken by the studio in the late 80s and early 90s were encouraged by Katzenberg, so without his voice in the room, the films began to fall flat. I'll also mention Howard Ashman's untimely death in 1991 from AIDS. I think his absence becomes more and more noticeable as you go through these films. By the year 2000, Disney feature animation no longer seemed interested in producing big emotional musicals. Perhaps it was Eisner's resentment towards Katzenberg's success with DreamWorks, or pressure from Pixar to produce original stories and computer-generated animation, but the string of movies leading to Eisner's departure in 2005 continually failed to resonate with audiences. The studio's recent run has been quite successful, but the Disney renaissance is still alive and well all around us between the live-action remakes, a strong presence in the theme parks, and beloved characters and songs that speak to audiences to this day. Okay, now that we've got all that background and context, let's start ranking the Disney Renaissance films with number 10. At the bottom of my list is The Rescuers Down Under, which is obviously the odd man out here, as the narrative and style doesn't match the rest of the movies. It's a sequel to 1977's The Rescuers. It's not based on any sort of fairy tale or classic, it's not a musical, and it doesn't have the sort of iconic princesses and heroes that the other films are known for. That's not to say it's a bad movie. I actually enjoy it quite a bit, with a number of nice sequences and fun moments. If you haven't seen it, or you haven't seen it since you were young, I do think it's worth a rewatch. And it's the first Disney animated film to take full advantage of computer animation through the CAPS technology, so that's an important claim to fame. Also, quick shout out to Bruce Broughton's score, which is very underappreciated. Overall, The Rescuer's Trip to Australia delivers a fun romp, cute characters, and some visual flair, but without the impact Disney achieves in the rest of the movies on this list. Number 9 is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Again, I don't consider this a bad movie by any stretch, but I do feel like it has a number of elements working against it perhaps the biggest of which is its tragic and dark nature. I do credit Disney for their willingness to let the filmmakers get so darn grim with this one. Hellfire is a chilling song unlike anything Disney has done before or since, and characters like Quasimodo and Esmeralda are complex and heartbreaking to watch. However, it is still a Disney movie, so when the humor and more child-focused content gets worked in, the result is an uneven tone and a story that doesn't quite come together. The music is beautiful in the way it turns these tragedies into melodies, and it's written in a way that's linear, telling the story more like a Broadway musical, or even an opera, instead of songs that work equally well as pop songs as they do as musical numbers. 
I feel like that works against the film to a degree because while they're nice to listen to in context, they aren't the type of songs you want to, you know, turn up in your car and sing along to. Still, when I do come back to Hunchback, I'm reminded of the care that went into things like the backgrounds, character designs, and themes that addressed real adult problems, so there's still so much to appreciate. Next up at number 8 is Pocahontas, which hurts me to say because there are a number of things I absolutely adore about this film, in particular the soundtrack. The Colors of the Wind sequence is simply a stunning piece of music and animation. Just Around the Riverbend, Mine, 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 and Savages are also wonderful numbers. Where the movie falters a bit is in its storytelling. The middle of the film has some rough patches and pacing issues, plus characters like Miko, Flit, and Percy provide some laughs, but don't match up with the animal sidekicks found in a lot of the other films. In addition, adapting a historical tale instead of a piece of fiction may have been a poor choice in retrospect, especially focused on a period that is marred by shameful and problematic events. While the filmmakers do make many attempts to treat the Native American people and their story with respect, other times they fall into stereotypes where the facts are whitewashed, so it can make the film a bit difficult to embrace in this day and age. That all being said, taking a step back from the historical context, I do really enjoy watching John Smith and Pocahontas' story, and like I said, the use of music and color and animation in those numbers is top tier Disney. So despite having some of my favorite numbers of the Renaissance, Pocahontas sits here at number 8. Okay, before we go on, I have to say that my bottom three and top three tend to be pretty set in stone, but this middle four can jump around a little bit depending on my mood or the last movie that I watched, so here's what I'm committing to for the purposes of this episode. So number seven on this list is Mulan, which again, feels crazy to put a movie this good and iconic this low on the list, but it just shows the quality across the board here. When I think about Mulan, the first thing that comes to mind is action. The war scenes in this movie are some of the best across all of Disney's animated catalog. Mulan herself is a great character and embodies a number of themes that are inspiring and compelling in a way that Disney doesn't always reach. Eddie Murphy's Mushu is nothing short of hilarious and the comedy in this one in general is super well done. In terms of music, Jerry Goldsmith's score is awesome. As far as the songs go, I love just about all of them, I'll Make a Man Out of You being of course the highlight but I feel like as a whole, they aren't as strong as some of the other soundtracks on this list. It's just my personal opinion, but I feel like songs like Reflection and A Girl Worth Fighting For have a really nice sound and composition, but never reaching truly great heights in their presentation. Perhaps the biggest positive is the way Mulan captures ancient Chinese culture through its visual style and tells a truly epic story. It's balanced out nicely by well-executed gags and a ton of great characters. Number 6 is The Little Mermaid. This one used to be higher on my list, but it's tumbled a few spots for me in recent years. Here's the thing. The first 20 or 30 minutes of The Little Mermaid are top tier and perhaps change the course of the entire Disney company. Part of Your World establishes the archetype of the I Want song, where the lead female character pours her heart out and sets up the main drive of the film in an emotional number. Under the Sea put a true Broadway showstopper in animation, and Ursula is such an entertaining villain to watch. However, once Ariel makes it to land, I find myself a bit bored with the middle segment of the movie, as the plot slows down to a crawl. We do get another great song with Kiss the Girl, but a weak one in Le Poisson. And no songs during the third act until the reprise at the very end. While I adore the character animation here, some of the supporting animation, backgrounds, and details aren't as strong as what was still to come from the Renaissance. 
but as the first film in this legendary run, The Little Mermaid was an instant classic that remains hugely popular today, and for good reason. My number 5 pick is to me the most underrated film of the renaissance, Hercules. I always wonder what the conversation was like when someone said, we'd like to do a Greek mythology story with gospel music. There's no reason that should work on any level, but somehow it does and it's amazing. The film also works as something of a superhero origin story reminiscent of a character like Superman. Hercules and Meg's relationship is unique in the Disney canon and always fun to watch the twists and turns. I also adore the art and character direction of this movie. It's clear that the filmmakers had a blast portraying the Greek myths while pulling in a lot of other inspirations. And then I have to mention Hades in the Underworld, some of the most interesting and entertaining villain portrayals in a Disney movie. On the flip side of things, I am a bit disappointed with some of the songs in this one. One Last Hope and I Won't Say I'm In Love being the weaker moments. Similar to some of the other lesser songs I've mentioned, I enjoy them in the context of the movie, but on their own, especially when compared to the rest of the output here, they do fall short. But the heroics, humor, and sensational art style make up for it in a big way. If you haven't watched Hercules in a while, I highly recommend giving it another shot because I do think it holds up very nicely. Number 4 on my list is Tarzan. I feel like when I was younger I didn't appreciate this movie as much, but upon rewatch about 5 years ago, it clicked for me how brilliant it really is. The character designs and animation itself is to me the peak of Disney hand-drawn animation. The only evidence I need is the Son of Man sequence. Go pull this up on YouTube or whatever and pay attention to the clever ways we transition from shot to shot, the fluidity and complexity of Tarzan's movements, and the compelling ways each shot is storyboarded and staged. It's really a masterclass in animation. This movie is also unique because it has music throughout written by Phil Collins, of course. However, the characters don't really sing or perform it at all. It works surprisingly well, and the film tells an interesting story full of fun characters and conflicts. To me, Tarzan is a movie that does everything well. It may not be the best at many things, but there are no real weaknesses which makes for a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Number 3 is Aladdin. This one definitely vies for my number 2 spot, but either way, Aladdin is not just one of my favorite Disney movies, but one of my favorite movies. It's hard not to fall in love with the characters. The street rat with the heart of gold, the princess that wants to see the world beyond her palace, not to mention Robin Williams' incomparable genie which might be the most celebrated animation voice role in cinematic history. Songs like Friend Like Me and Prince Ali are absolute delights. Between the music itself, the lyrics, the visual gags, and the colorful and complex animation, they're constantly bringing the laughs and eye candy. You've also got sequences like The Cave of Wonders and A Whole New World that sweep you up in the adventure, drama, and romance. Aladdin is a crowd pleaser, plain and simple. If I have to name a negative here, it's that the third act falls a bit short in my eyes. The musical numbers mostly take a back seat in the second half, and while the story and character resolutions are well conceived, I feel like the execution is not as compelling as what some of the other Renaissance movies bring to the table. That being said, Aladdin is packed with thrills, spectacle, and humor, and along with delightful characters and music, make for a top-tier Disney flick. My number two is The Lion King. I can't think of a film with an opening scene as epic and compelling as The Circle of Life. There's a reason why this sequence, particularly Rafiki holding up Simba, has become so iconic and often referenced. The combination of Elton John, Tim Rice, Hans Zimmer, and Lebo M created a deep and unforgettable soundtrack. 
You have moments of pure carefree joy and just can't wait to be king in Hakuna Matata. And then moments of tragedy and dread during Mufasa's death and be prepared. Can You Feel the Love Tonight is a perfect romantic interlude which launches us into a gripping climax all while reflecting some very mature themes. While most of the Renaissance films rely heavily on the human-like characters, Lion King is the only one to be entirely animals, and the animation for each different species is pulled off incredibly well. It's also worth noting that this was the first Disney animated film not completely based off an existing story. There are many elements borrowed from Hamlet and some other previous works, but the result was something new. The Lion King also has an incredible balance of comedy and seriousness. It feels like the comedic beats always come at the right time, and just when things are getting too silly, something dramatic happens. Simba's arc might be the best of any character in this run, and the white knuckle action of his climactic showdown with Scar is epic. Finishing us off at number one is of course Beauty and the Beast. If you know me well, this is probably not a surprise. It was the first animated movie to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, and the only one to do so when the nominees were limited to five. The Academy recognized it for good reason, as the film is a masterpiece, filled with impressive animation, character design, music, voice acting, and storytelling. From the prologue with its foreboding and music and stunning stained glass art direction, we are brought into a simultaneously beautiful, tragic, and whimsical world. There are so many wonderful characters here, each one with fully fleshed out personalities and animated with care. We fall in love with Belle instantly and quickly meet Gaston and LeFou, who are terrifying in how grounded and realistic their villainy is. The Beast could have easily come off as silly or over the top, but because he's handled in such a straightforward and tragic fashion, it not only works, but we actually connect with him. More recent household objects provide comic relief, but also have important character arcs that help move the story forward in important ways. At the heart of everything, of course, is Belle and Beast's story. I know it gets flack sometimes for just being a case of Stockholm Syndrome, but this is a Disney movie and a fairy tale, folks. Sometimes things need to be severe and on the nose in order to tell an accessible story and send a strong message. Here, the messages of self-sacrifice, whether it's Belle sacrificing herself for her father or Beast sacrificing himself for Belle, and of judging someone by what's inside, are illustrated with care and passion hitting us right in the feels with an all-time classic Disney finale. The last thing I need to praise here is the music, both the songs and the score. I actually plan on doing an entire episode in the future about the music of Beauty and the Beast, but Alan Menken's work here is utterly brilliant. His use of musical themes woven throughout the film is unparalleled, and every single song he and Howard Ashman wrote are at the top tier of Disney's catalog. Clearly I could go on and on about this movie, I actually deleted a ton of this segment because it was going so long, so I'll just wrap this up by saying that Beauty and the Beast is my favorite renaissance movie, my favorite Disney animated movie, and one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay, now it's your turn. Drop your ranking in the comments, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how everyone's lists compare. Before we say goodbye, I just want to tell you a little bit more about that iPhone app I mentioned at the top of the show. Again, it's called Flylist, and I created it as a fun tool to help you log and track everything there is to do in Walt Disney World. So I created lists of every attraction, resort, character, restaurant, you name it, so that you can keep track of what you've done and what's still on your to-do list. We're launching on October 1st, and I'd love you to follow along at Flylist App on all the social media platforms, or head to flylistapp.com for more info and to sign up to be one of the first to download. Looking forward to having the Diz Quiz community over there as well. Appreciate your support, 
And then, of course, subscribing to the Diz Quiz on YouTube podcast services. Leaving a like, a comment, a subscribe, a podcast review. All of that is super appreciated and helps us grow here on the Diz Quiz channel. So until next time, I've been Tommy T. This has been the Diz Quiz, and we will see you real soon. Bye-bye.